Although, I will say, I tried to, like, think of something interesting to talk about, like, for a week, and nothing's come to me. I'm just not a very interesting person. Um, have you watched The Bachelor? No! I was thinking you were gonna ask that. That is what we need to talk about. Okay, but here's the thing, is I feel like usually there's a lot more time between Between, the end of one and the start of another, and I don't know if I'm emotionally recovered from last season also like i'm a little disappointed that we don't that they like picked a random person for Mm -hmm. the bachelor because well first of all i think that there were like plenty of you know black bachelors that could have been picked like years ago diggy um (laughs) still salty about that um but yeah it's just it's like weird for me because i don't there's no like buy-in for me to to watch because i haven't seen him on another season to be like oh i like this person or like oh i don't like this person you know i yeah that's completely valid i thought i would feel the same or i did feel the same um but i will say i so i never finished tasha's season um or i guess clasha's season (laughs) (laughs) um and so um I, I just got so annoyed with that entire season from everything with Claire, like Tasha, like the production, like all of it annoyed me. I knew she wasn't picking Ivan. So I personally emotionally right. checked out. So I was like, whatever, you could have, you know, fake Matt McConaughey, whatever. Um, <laughs> See, I had but, read online that she ended up with Brendan. Like I, I read that she got engaged to... I already forgot his name. I think you're talking about the one. Wait, what? I read online that she got engaged to. Is his name Zach? Yeah, yeah. That she got engaged to him, but afterwards they broke up and she got back together with Brendan. That's what I read online. So I watched it because I was like, "Is this what happens?" Okay. No, I I didn't know. I just knew. I just knew the type of person that I I figured she was going to pick. And I was kind of like, I mean, it's fine. It's her life. I roll, though. Um, and so, yeah, I was apprehensive coming into this season. Cause I'm like, yeah, I don't know you. You're apparently Tyler's friend. Like, who cares? Um, but I think because of how incestuous <laughs> that The Bachelor um, franchise has been over the years, it's surprisingly a breath of fresh air when – like we don't know anyone like we don't know any of these women we don't know him and like you know they give you like a you know deep intro package into like getting to know him but it's nice to see someone who has like never played the bachelor game just like i don't know what i'm doing wait what's this a first impression (laughs) you know right um and so that's nice and then um like i surprisingly like am in favor of like at least watching most of these women usually the first night i'm like oh my god half of these people are awful um but yeah it's it's good i 
you know, give yourself a couple weeks, but hopefully you join right. me. I'll catch on this up. Bandwagon. I will. I'll get to it. Um, yeah, I'm really excited for Bachelor in Paradise too because I think there were a lot of guys that I liked on Clayish season that I want to see again, and like the drama from this season, I feel like was like lighthearted drama kind of. Yeah, as opposed to like other seasons where the drama was very dark and it's like oh well this person's secretly racist but it's like oh i want to see like noah and bennett duke it out again yeah yeah that was like funny for sure for sure and that's kind of how i feel about this see i i like of course they have like the random people there who are just you clearly casted to like stir the pot Mm -hmm. um but it also just seems like so low stakes because like none of you guys are ingrained in this franchise at all so i'm kind of like this i don't expect anything real <laughs> to happen like drama wise but you need to have certain expectations going mm-hmm. into reality tv for um, sure for sure and, i've yeah, been having absolutely. i like i went on a reha- reality tv kick because i just felt like i wasn't in an emotional place to um really i guess immerse myself in like a long series of like a tv show scripted a long scripted series mm-hmm. um so like i could do like a you know a one season or, or whatever and so i've been watching so much reality tv and honestly it's just been making me angry <laughs> i'm like the fact that people would behave like this like do they not have jobs are they not worried what their <laughs> boss is gonna think about them like <laughs> oh my god you um, sound like you sound like my little sister she's like I like watching reality TV because it reminds me that even though that I feel so crazy, at least I'm not as bad as these people. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. Hey, if you're listening from the Psyching Out Slack page, what's up? (laughs) God Um, bless you all for going through the process of applying to grad school. Uh, Been there, done that, never doing it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're so lucky, Rachel. You're already on the other side. Yeah, I Um, just got it out of the way. What, I was 21 years old (laughs) when I finished my grad school application. (laughs) It's so weird. I'm. Oh, my God. I bet if I looked back on it, I'd be like, this is embarrassing. I wrote my personal statement and talked about how I played ukulele. (laughs) Why did they let me into grad school? (laughs) Do you still play your ukulele? Um, not excessively. Like, I remember it, but I don't play it as much. By the way, um, listeners, Rachel is a very talented singer and ukulele player. I don't think you should, like, <laughs> s- sell me up that much. Uh, I I think you're... I, I, I'd buy an album. <laughs> well, that would require me writing an album. And I also I just, know four chords, so hey, hope you're into that. 
hey, I can't, you know, differentiate a piano from a guitar. So that doesn't matter to me. Um, I, I think, think I had <laughs> legit. I think I had a dream last night that I was like writing amazing music and I was like writing these lyrics and I was like, these are the best lyrics. Like I could be famous, but I don't remember any of that. So. I mean, maybe that's what you are called to do. You should d- dip your toe in that pond. Uh, let's just see how this whole like therapist thing goes first. I think I'm pretty good at that too. Um, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so yeah, we're doing, um, oh, also guys like review, whatever we will, um, donate to the National Center for Victims of Crime. Oh, I completely forgot about that. Yes, please. I put on Twitter today, actually. I said, you know, if fellow podcasters, obviously we're all trying to get reviews. We're trying to like boost our Mm -hmm. visibility so if you have a podcast too like tell me about it i'll listen i'll leave a review yeah for sure i love podcasts as well we will we can do mutual reviewing exactly today we have a fun you know we were like everything that's been going on is so stressful so we picked a really like light-hearted topic (laughs) this week um natalie was like you know i'm just looking for something to like lift up my spirits as Mm -hmm. the world crumbles Mm -hmm. (laughs) do you want to say what you picked um yeah so i just needed uh something to you know lighten the load a a little little palate cleanser exactly and so we i chose um women who committed crimes who were sentenced to death Um, although i think both of our people are still alive for yeah so my yes um as at the time of recording this on january 7th my person is still alive so (laughs) just putting that out there (sighs) i also just have more disclaimers for myself so um yeah as we said we're fil- we're recording filming why do i want to say filming um as i said we're not filming we're recording yeah i'm not wearing I look hideous. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah we're recording on january 7th 2021 super weird that we're in 2021 right isn't it gross um, i hate it yeah this is technically yeah our first episode that we're recording in 2021 because we're like when you write out the year it feels like you're writing out this super futuristic year yeah Yeah. we are still living in the 1500s it feels like yeah no there's coups it also like just makes me think of like phil of the future and like that's still kind of far away (laughs) what year did that take place in i don't know i just know he was a 22nd century man oh (laughs) that was the theme what a great show Oh yeah, very that guy was good. so cute. I still have <laughs> Ricky Ullman. Oh my god, he's so cute. Um, I, I respect that. That's solid. Good um, thing Evan doesn't listen to this. Yeah. So getting yeah. So first episode of 2021, um, or recording of 2021, um, and so, uh, on January 12th, 2021. So less than a week from when we are recording this today, but it'll be two days before you guys get this episode um lisa montgomery who my case is about is scheduled to um join mary surratt 
Ethel Rosenberg and Bonnie Heady as being the only women women to ever be executed by the United States federal government. Um, and so there have been women who have been um, executed for under like state law, um, but only three um to date have been and then four as of next week um and so we didn't really talk about like where we're at in terms of the death penalty and so i um and totally fine sharing my opinion um and so i just want to be clear that i'm like personally very strongly opposed to the death penalty um and I, you know, not to get political, but let's get political. I am like very disappointed um, by Donald Trump's decision to rush this execution in his lame duck period. Um, And as I talk about the case, like I don't condone, obviously, I don't think we ever condone any crimes that people commit. Um, And so, yeah, I think what the crime that was committed was absolutely atrocious and I do want to speak with respect to the victims but I do think it's important to tell um Lisa's story in its entirety um so that's where I'm starting um so Lisa Montgomery was born in Melbourne Kansas in 1968 she was raised mostly by her mother Judy and her stepfather Jack At a very early age, Lisa was exposed and subject to a significant amount of trauma. As early as three years old, Lisa was, oh my God, I just had the weirdest feeling that somebody was standing over my shoulder and I'm in a room by myself, so (laughs) I'm fine. Um, All right. So at a very early age, Lisa was exposed and subject to a significant amount of trauma. As early as three years old, Lisa was an indirect victim of sexual abuse. On more than one occasion, she would go to bed lying beside her older sister, Diane, who was only eight at the time. Um, Diane was her half sister. And um, so they'd be like lying beside each other and their male babysitter would rape Diane while um, Lisa was lying beside them. Um, And as far as I can tell, that was a, that happened more than once. Um, And so by 11, Lisa experienced this trauma herself at the hands of her alcoholic stepfather, Jack, who began raping her multiple times a week, in addition to regularly beating her and her mother. Raping Lisa wasn't just a happenstance occurrence that happened whenever Jack got wasted. Instead, he went as far as building a devoted room for Lisa next to their, their trailer, which was located deep in the woods in Oklahoma. He spent the next four years using a devoted entrance where he could come and go and rape Lisa as he pleased. Um, the trailer was so isolated that even when she screamed, nobody could hear her. The assaults were routinely violent. If Lisa resisted at all, he would slam her head hard against the concrete floor. He slammed her head so hard that later MRI scans of her brain show that she clearly suffered traumatic, severe traumatic brain injuries. Lisa's mother, Julie, apparently was unaware of the abuse that her husband was inflicting upon her daughter. Until one day, Judy walked in mid-assault. Judy was enraged. She grabbed a gun. Instead of doing what I imagine I would do in a situation like this, Judy held the gun to Lisa's head and screamed at her, how could you do this to me? As if Lisa, 
a child was somehow complicit in the torture that Jack was inflicting upon her. Um, So yeah, as I said, it is a difficult one. Um, I, it's shocking to me that a mother, a human would behave this way. Um, Yeah. So raping, no, um, sorry. Uh, After this, the abuse only got worse. Jack started inviting his friends over in groups, all of whom would take turns assaulting Lisa for hours. And in the end, they'd finish by urinating on her. Not only did Judy, Lisa's mom, do nothing to stop it. Whenever she needed something repaired in their trailer, she would sell her daughter's body in exchange for handyman labor. Oh, my God. Yes. And so throughout this abuse... Lisa did what she could do to mentally escape. For her, that meant turning to alcohol. And as soon as she could, Lisa got married because to her, that was the only way that she could escape. Um, And in both her first and second marriage, um, she was subject to further physical abuse. Sandra Babcock, uh, faculty director of the Cornell Center on the Death Penalty Worldwide, said, This is a story about a woman who is profoundly mentally ill as a result of a lifetime of torture and sexual violence. Lisa is not the worst of the worst. She is the most broken of the broken. Um, And I, you know, just based off of like that, you know, origin story, I... I can't like there are no words to like really describe like how I how I feel about like the torture that like a child that this woman had to go through early in her life and I can't even imagine like I I have a pretty good working understanding of how (laughs) trauma impacts the brain um and I truly can't even fathom like exactly (laughs) like what she like even today like feels on a daily basis and so again not condoning any crime that she you know commits but like holy crap right also i'm wondering this comes up in my case too about the traumatic brain injury i'm wondering if you're going to talk about that later um about the impacts of a traumatic brain injury um, yeah i mean possible future violence yeah well we i mean we can get into it yeah so (laughs) obviously our brains are a powerful thing but they are at the end of the day very like fragile you know um and so depending on how your how i guess where the injury occurs in your brain like that could severely impact you know if it's your frontal lobe it can impact your personality it could impact um how you handle aggression how you understand right from wrong um and so yeah i feel like having i feel like there's a lot of research that i think is being done on tbi and i don't necessarily know if that has translated over into like how the legal system chooses to understand um, like crimes committed when traumatic brain injury, when traumatic brain injury is at play. Um, I remember in, what was that? What's the movie that um, just mercy um, Mm -hmm. with Michael B. Jordan um, and Jamie Foxx. One of the, one of the characters who, was actually a real person um he had gone to war maybe vietnam 
I don't know. I can't remember the time period. Um, and yeah, so he'd gone to war. He had severe PTSD, suffered like traumatic brain injury. And mm-hmm. his crime, the reason that he was on death row was because he thought he was in the middle of war one day and put a bomb on someone's front door. Um, and so, and like that, like wasn't given, but they obviously didn't have the understanding of how like TBIs and stuff like impact the brain or just PTSD trauma in general. Um, and so he was also sentenced to death. And so, I don't know, it's just interesting to see how there are different strides, but not necessarily being reflected in justice system. Do you have thoughts on on traumatic brain injuries? So in response to brain injuries, like we were saying, we just don't know enough about brain injuries to be able to, I think, like present that evidence in court. Um, So like if someone had a broken leg, we wouldn't expect them to be able to walk up a flight of stairs. Or if someone had a heart attack while they were operating a car and got into an accident that killed someone, we wouldn't say that that person was a murderer, right? So in the cases, in two with trauma, there's not only the physical trauma that can happen to your brain, the event itself is just traumatic. So it's really hard to separate the two. Um, And you know, just in general with mental illnesses, we just don't necessarily always have the physical evidence to to back certain things up. We just don't know enough about biological factors mm-hmm. um, or, you know, whatever. But we do have some evidence supporting um, that, that links brain lesions. So injuries in your brain caused by, you know, stroke, tumor, you know, that physical trauma um, that can put someone at a higher risk for committing a violent crime. Um, So one of the most famous cases of brain injury was Phineas Gage. You ever heard of him? Yes. Duh. (laughs) Well, I think we learned about Phineas Gage back in like high school. (laughs) I want to say middle school, but maybe it was high school. Um, But basically, if, if you hadn't heard of him, he's the guy that like the railroad spike it was in 1848 a railroad spike pierced his frontal lobe so it like shot up through his head and like went out the back and it seemed like it was something that should have killed him but he survived um but there were some drastic changes in his personality and behavior which i think around that time was when we first started getting the idea that a brain injury may lead to um these differences in in personality Um, So Dr. Ryan Darby, who was an assistant professor of neurology at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in 2017, published a study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, So one of his inspirations for the study, obviously, you know, Phineas Gage was the inspiration for it all, but was the case of Charles Whitman, a former Marine sniper who in 1990. 1966 climbed an observation tower at the university of texas and shot 11 people passing by so in total that day he killed 16 people including his wife and his mother after he died a brain tumor was found in his autopsy the tumor was located in the hypothalamus region of the brain and some theorized it could have been pressing against his amygdala which is responsible for the way that we process emotions um, so he wrote a series of really confusing notes before the murders, which I found on Murderpedia. One of them said, I don't understand what is compelling me to type this note. I've been having fears and violent impulses. I've had some tremendous tremendous headaches. He also wrote, I intend to kill Kathy. That was his wife. I love her very much. I intend to kill my wife after I pick her up from work. I don't want 
her to face the embarrassment that my actions will surely cause. And then he also wrote a note after the or after he killed his mother that the detectives found. I've just killed my mother. If there's a heaven, she's going there. If there's not a heaven, she is out of her pain and misery. I love my mother with all my heart. So from these notes, I get the impression that Charles is just very disorganized and confused. Yeah. And even though we don't necessarily have proof that this tumor pressing up against his amygdala contributed to this, um, I don't see how it couldn't. Like, I don't think yeah. that we can consider this without it. And just the way that he's processing his thoughts are just so muddled. He's saying, I love these people, I care about them so much, but I'm going to kill them. I think that shows that he was not processing his emotions clearly. Um but um let's see what else did i say i think that's all i had to say but you know it's also important to consider the physical effects of like childhood abuse on the brain yeah. which you were saying so like For not sure. only the traumatic experience itself um i will say that i think the part they've narrowed it down so that there's certain parts of the brain that if those parts are impacted then you know it's possible that they contribute to violent actions and i think it mostly is centered on the frontal lobe um, mm -hmm. So if there is an injury that occurs in another part of the brain, you know, because like, yeah, like if you, some brain injuries result in like, you're paralyzed. Yeah. So exactly. Is it so hard to imagine that a certain brain injury could cause you could to change your personality? Yeah. Change or, completely, yeah. like not, or like be violent or like people, exactly. People have like strokes all the time and suddenly like you know can't remember what you said five minutes ago so um yeah I don't I don't think it's outside of the realm of possibility I do think that I don't think that they're kind of like what I was saying I don't think that there um is like a good like marriage I guess between any advancements in like science and research and the justice system I don't think those two things necessarily like move in the same direction at the same time and right. so I do think like you know we could have more groundbreaking like research on traumatic brain injuries trauma because in my opinion trauma itself is enough to mentally like I like rather than like mental disorders like considering it like a mental injury like trauma injures mm -hmm the person um and how if that's not assessed diagnosed treated appropriately um well, or even, even yeah. if it is like you never know how it's going to impact either way i just don't think that um even, i don't think that yeah. the justice system plans on catching up <laughs> anytime soon unfortunately even if there's no physical trauma even it's still yeah, or like exactly. even if the trauma like if it's sexual trauma, you know, it emotional. Yeah. It affects the way that our brains develop and how we process things. Um, and I think that, yeah, science just hasn't caught up with, uh, with all of that. And I think people have a very hard, because at the end of the day, if you kill someone, you kill someone. Um, yeah. so if they say, Oh, it's because this person had a tumor in their brain, you know, it still doesn't take away the fact that, someone lost a family member or if they were tortured in a horrific yeah. manner it doesn't just disappear because oh you had a tumor um so it's just i think from a philosophical perspective too it's you know how responsible is this person um for their actions like it's just so hard to say but yeah that's my i agree little research i did on 
<laughs> we are not experts. <laughs> Just throwing we it out are there. Not, but if someone gives me a PhD, I might be one day. <laughs> Um, just kidding but also yes, I'm not kidding me. give her a PhD <laughs> um, so <clears throat> alright so we've had some backstory on um, Lisa so we will fast forward um, to 2004 so Bobby Joe Stinnett 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 I don't know um, and her husband ran a dog breeding business outside or sorry out of um so they ran a dog dog breeding business bobby uh, justinette and her husband ran a dog breeding business say that five of, times fast <laughs> a dog breeding business out of their home in skidmore missouri missouri um and so bobby was active on online forums related to dogs and that's how she and lisa montgomery met in an online chat room devoted to rat terriers which i don't know dog breeds and so i had to look that up um and so the two chatted online and exchanged emails um bobby eventually revealed to lisa that she was pregnant Lisa told Bobby that she was also pregnant, and so they spent time just emailing and chatting about their pregnancies. One day, um, Bobby was contacted by a woman named Darlene Fisher, who wanted to purchase a dog from uh, the Stinnett's, um, like, breeding business. And so Bobby, who was eight months pregnant at the time, scheduled a time for Darlene to come over and complete the sale she'd scheduled meetings like this at her home um several times before no big deal and so however on december 16th 2004 on december 16th 2004 the woman who arrived at her home was not a darlene fisher rather it was lisa montgomery lisa entered bobby's home and strangled her then um so more trigger warning um you know, click the 15 seconds ahead button if you'd like. Uh, so then after strangling her, probably the most horrifying part of all, Lisa cut the premature baby from Bobby's womb mm-hmm. and left. And so Bobby's mom, Becky, found her an hour after the attack in a pool of her own blood. Becky described the scene as looking like Bobby's stomach had exploded. Paramedics arrived and were unable to revive Bobby, who was later... Um, pronounced dead at the hospital um the following day police tracked lisa to her home in malvern kansas using forensic computer investigation so basically they looked at um different chat logs that bobby yeah, it's had a fancy way of saying just went yeah. into your computer yeah and then they you know track follow the breadcrumbs and so lisa Um, by the time, like, the police had got there, Lisa was basically claiming the baby as her own. Um, it was only a day. And so they, you know, took the baby, did some, like, uh, DNA testing just to confirm this baby wasn't swapped out, you know. Wait, the baby, Um, was the baby alive? Yeah, the baby was alive. Eight months. You can survive it. Eight months. Still, but um, through the process of removal, I'm oh, sure yeah, it was the process not of, yeah. <laughs> sanitary well, or yeah, you're right, medically you're right. professional in any way whatsoever. Yeah, valid. Um, so yeah, the baby was alive, fortunately. Um, and so they re they I guess united the baby. I was gonna say reunited, but they united the baby with um its father. 
and they arrested Lisa that day. And so Lisa's original story, um, and I think a lot of what the media kind of ran with, um, was that she had suffered a miscarriage, like, recently. And, um, you know, I think the, the like, inference or whatever um, from that was that she, like, desperately wanted a baby um, following her miscarriage. And so... Her former husband, however, said that after she had four children, Lisa underwent a tubal ligation in 1990, which basically dispels the idea that she had recently had a um, miscarriage that kind of sent her on this spiral. Um, ultimately, Lisa was charged with the federal offense of kidnapping resulting in a death. Um, so that crime was established by the Federal Kidnapping Act of 1932. Um, so big crime, I guess. Um, and so that it also carries a maximum sentence of either life imprisonment or the death penalty. And so pretrial hearings were held. In a testimony, a neuropsychologist stated that head, head injuries as severe as the ones Lisa had sustained at the hands of her stepfather could have damaged the part of her brain that controls aggression. Her defense attorney testified that Lisa had pseudosiasis, which is a condition that causes a woman to believe that she's pregnant and even show outward signs of pregnancy, even when she is not pregnant. Well, yeah, I was just going to ask, is it possible that she believed she had a miscarriage, even though yeah, definitely. she had a tubal ligation? Definitely. Um, so this, uh, there is a neuroscientist, his name, I apologize, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but his name is Valet Anur Subramanian Ramachandran. Quite a name. Um, Yes. Uh, So he is a neuroscientist and he actually testified that Lisa had pseudosiasis, depression, um, borderline personality disorder and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And so, yeah, I I definitely if if these doctor I didn't I didn't meet her. I don't know. So if these doctors believe that she had pseudosiasis, then I fully am on board with believing believing that. that Lisa believed that she was pregnant and had a miscarriage recently. Um, that too I, is like a subset of crimes in itself where it's like horrific to imagine that a woman would do this to another woman, but it's actually, mm-hmm. I think more, I don't think it's super common in, in any sense, but it does happen. And yeah, you know, I think it is its own unique situation where it's this woman is, I don't think the women are, you know intending to harm um i mean it's hard to say that because you wouldn't think like oh of course someone's gonna survive this but um i think it just shows a you know i feel like if someone is really angry in the moment they're heated like and they might accidentally like or they might on purposely hurt someone accidentally kill them to me that's a whole lot easier to wrap my head around than a situation like this which i think just goes to show that it's caused by a severe mental illness. Mm -hmm. I also think, um, and this is where I feel like maybe people might feel I'm over, um, I'm over, I don't know, not identifying, but whatever, um, humanizing. Um, Like, if you just think about, you know, 
traumatic brain injury, all that stuff aside, right? Um, just thinking about, like, the tr- the trauma and, like, the state of, like, the life that she was brought into, the state, um, her, how, how she formed her understanding of the world. Um, <clears throat> it was violent. It was unforgiving. It was painful. It was, like, um, cruel. Um, like, probably, in her case, like, bloody. Like, all, all of these things, right? Yeah, so, so she's, like, desensitized I, to these things, even. Not, not just desensitized, but I think it just shifts your understanding of, like, how you, like how the world functions and, like, how you are meant to function within the world. Like, I just think, you know, somebody who, um, like, goes through all of the things that she went through her mother finds all of these people are aware and nobody mm-hmm. helps her. How does that change your understanding of right and wrong? Mm-hmm. And then, and again, I'm not saying like, yo, she, she had no idea and she should have, like she should have known or, you know, she had no idea that what she did was wrong or whatever. I'm not saying that. Um, but I am saying that there has like that you, it's hard for me not to try to like figure out how like her brain, I guess kind of right. like, made sense of what was happening because even if it doesn't make sense in like our like rational world to other to the to whoever's going through it they've created some sort of logic within their mind that like they're going with even if it doesn't make sense to them like it's it, there it follows some sort of like reason right. somehow I've, I've um, heard somewhere i won't take credit for this but that people who experience trauma they have a different rule book than the rest of you know, people. I guess everyone's rule books differ a little bit, but people who have experienced trauma have a drastically different rule book, like you were saying. Yeah. Right and wrong. Yeah. You know, right it's, not might even might not even exist for them. Yeah, it also in terms of what justice is, like, um, and then just in terms of like what her entire basically her entire life people abused and took from her. Mm-hmm. And what did she do to someone else? Um, and so, yeah, again, super heinous. She, like, not forgiving um, what she did, but that compounded by depression, borderline personality disorder, post-traumatic um, uh, stress disorder, TBI, like, wow, it's a lot. Um, and so, anyway, Dr. Ramachandran, um, he also testified that Lisa's like she was in a delusional state at the time and that her state was actually fluctuating um, throughout like that whole time period. And so that he believed that the fluctuations in her delusional state is what um, caused like all of the different shifts in her story because she was at different stages of the delusion. Therefore there was different logic that she was applying to like whatever delusion that she was in at the time. Um, and so given all of that, he ultimately believed that Lisa was not able to fully grasp what she was doing at the time. Um, not able to grasp the like, like heinousness, the quality of the crime that she was committing, not able to grasp that it was a crime. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, whatever side you stand on the prosecutor and, um, another uh, a forensic psychiatrist, so not a neuroscientist, um, Park Dietz. Um, and so if you guys listen closely, Park Dietz was actually um, one of the uh, psychiatrists who was called to testify in Betty Broderick's case. Um, 
he disagreed with Dr. Ramachandran's assessment of Lisa. I don't know what his justification was for disagreeing. Um, he particularly disagreed with the pseudosiesis. Um, I feel like if you even take the pseudosiesis out of the equation, we're still dealing with a lot. So, right. um, but yeah, so ultimately on October 22nd, 2007, a jury rejected the assertion that Lisa was delusional at the time of her crime and she was found guilty of, um, kidnapping and murdering Bobby Joe Stinnett. Um, a few days later, the jury recommended that they recommended the death penalty for sentencing. And soon after that, um, judge Gary A. Fenner formally sentenced Lisa to death. Um, and so, ex- so there was like some, so at the time of like Lisa's conviction, different like she had already basically seen like a revolving door of different like medical experts confirming mm-hmm. opinions, disproving others, different things like that. And so um, uh, plenty of experts um, definitely believe that she was living with psychosis, bipolar disorder, um, post-traumatic stress disorders, other traumatic stress disorders, um, and that she had permanent brain damage and that she was often disassociated from reality. Um, still, um, she, like her, I guess, sentence to death um, has stuck. And so she was originally scheduled to be executed on December 8th. 2020 um but she was i think i think one of her attorneys got covid and so that pushed um the execution to january 12th 2021 um so for everyone who is listening um for two days ago um and so there i think on january 1st i think her her um her lawyers obviously filed like appeals and things like that um, to stall the execution. But on January 1st, um, a I think uh, appeals court in D.C., so a U.S. Court of Appeals um, basically reinstated her um, execution and basically was like it is allowed to move forward on January 12th. Um, and so my estimation is that she will probably... I think there might be one other person who's currently um, scheduled to die federally. Um, I think I'm not sure which one of them is first, but I do think that she probably is going to end up being the last federal execution that we see in our lifetime. Yeah. That's just so so sad. Yeah. I think what she had to experience as a child was worse than death. So it's, just disappointing that she's having to go through all this like yeah like you're saying i don't want to have too much i don't want to you know over sympathize but how can any how can you hear that story and think like oh yeah this person is going to come out of their childhood a functioning adult (laughs) yeah it's just awful god i yeah exactly and uh, it, it also was just kind of like, I don't know, going back to the whole death penalty 
it for me it doesn't seem like justice but i do like i understand where other people who who are okay with it support it understand it i get where like why they think it's okay but in like it's kind of like cases like this where i'm like this person was acting out of their sickness right and we are killing a sick person right and so it just it seems difficult um but I think more importantly, I do think this kind of speaks back to I almost feel like it's our our catchphrase at this point. But like just going through the story of her childhood, like you see like the ways like the world kind of failed and like mm-hmm. so many missed opportunities um, like for. Well, I mean, I don't know if she was like going to school regularly or what, but, you know, for like a decade plus whatever, um, like had there been some sort of intervention right um had somebody saved this girl had those men or the plumber like somebody was like hey this is not okay um like who knows what yeah. it could have been like for her so. i don't think that this would have ended up happening at all if there was some type of early intervention yeah so early intervention guys <laughs> <laughs> right i'm like having to psych myself up i just sang a little song to gary um so i could like not be so depressed going into this um because like mine's not much better (laughs) um so i'm going to tell you the story of the only woman on death row in tennessee krista pike but first i'm going to start off with telling a little bit of background about colleen slemmer slemmer um so colleen slemmer joined job corps in october of 1994 in tennessee she was just 19 years old and traveled from from florida to knoxville um colleen had been working in the restaurant industry and as someone who's worked in the restaurant industry she probably was like you know i'm ready to to move into a different career field i think um it's not always for everyone it's long hours it's you know working for tips so she was probably just ready to move on you know find some stability uh she planned to study computer technology and wanted to find a good stable job uh job corps was a program that provided housing for teenagers that offered room and board while the kids worked on developing skills um or getting education and they could be involved in the program for up to three years so this is one of those, you know, interventions that we were talking about. <laughs> Maybe didn't come soon enough, but we'll get there. Um, so Colleen's mother, Mae Martina, said Colleen was an awesome and giving person. She also liked to work with kids with disabilities. So it's possible that, you know, um, had she been able to, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this, but um, <laughs> so Krista Pike um, Krista Pike was born on March 10th, 1976 in North Carolina. She had a difficult childhood. Her mother struggled with alcohol abuse and her father was out of the picture. So Krista was raised by her grandmother and did very well under her grandmother's care. Um, during this time, she was reportedly a great student and had a very promising future. But when she was 12 years old, Krista's grandmother suddenly passed away and she was forced to move back in with her mother. Mom wasn't around much, and Kristen no longer had a supportive caregiver in her life, and no longer had any rules or boundaries. 
So she started using drugs and alcohol and was arrested for shoplifting, which, you know, isn't too outside of the norm for kids. uh, But given everything else that was going on, you know, the grief from losing her sole caregiver, you know, mom not being so great, um, she was really struggling. So Mm -hmm. she was given a one-year sentence to juvenile detention. And she actually did really well with the strict rules and guidelines, which... Um, actually isn't like super surprising to hear. I don't think it's uncommon for kids to do well in settings where they have this like consistency. I think at the end of the day, like kids like having rules, they like having consistency. Um, so she, you know, clearly wasn't getting it from mom at this point. Uh, when Krista was released, she joined the Job Corps program in Knoxville. And Krista aspired to work in healthcare as a nurse technician. So the job corps was full of young men and women, and it was inevitable that there would be some budding romances. Krista met a man named Tadaryl Ship. Tadaryl was a Tennessee native, and before joining the job corps, he was living with his mother. Tadaryl had a hard time in high school and ultimately dropped out in the ninth grade. His mother became worried when he started hanging around some known gang members, so his mom encouraged him to enroll in the job corps program, and he started the culinary arts program at the age of 17. So this, I think, you know, the job course seemed like a really great program and it was meant to give kids a better future, but it's just possible that, you know, hearing the backstories of these kids, it might just be, you know, it came a little bit too late. I'm sure it worked out really well for for a lot of kids, but um, their parents trusted that sending them off to this job corps program was the right thing to do. There was no way anyone could have predicted what happened next. So when Krista and Tadaryl met, they instantly clicked. Their classmates said they were very much in love, which I take with a grain of salt because they're (laughs) teenagers. Um, But there was a relationship there. Um, So Tadaryl was into satanic worship and dark magic. I know that took kind of a weird turn. Um, And this reminds me, we have talked about satanic panic in, in cases we've covered, but I think in all of the cases pretty much up until this one the satanic panic has just been just that like panic about something that doesn't actually happen because i know you know people love to blame satan for her crimes <laughs> um but these kids started a satanic group with some of the other job course students and started to practice devil worshiping um so i think people who feel excluded or rejected by society might embrace these kind of darker things so um you know it's a way of rejecting people before they reject you or maybe you know this is something that's really powerful and gives them something to to unify so i'm not i would say just don't put any stock in satanism making people evil i just think that people with certain tendencies might be attracted to the dark arts um you know, I feel like society thinks, like, oh, kids are perfect until they find the devil and then, you know, they're murderers. But I think it's the other way around. I think that kids who are already, you know, struggling a bit, who are more drawn to darker things, possibly because of trauma in their past, maybe, you know, more likely to find comfort in that sort of thing. Anyway, um, so Shadala Peterson was one of the students in the satanic group. Um, so there wasn't a lot of information on Shadala um, you know, what brought her to Job Corps, how invested she was in the group. Um, 
so like with teenagers, adults, you know, sometimes people just go along with things to fit in. So I don't know, you know, how involved she was, but she does remain in the story. Um, So Krista and Colleen did not get along. Over the course of three months, Krista thought that Colleen was flirting with Tadaryl and accused her of trying to steal her boyfriend. Typical, I feel like, teenager-y things. Um, It it didn't look like this was actually the case, according to Colleen's friends. Who knows? Um, But it, you know, isn't even... I don't know. That was a possible explanation for what happened next, but not justifiable in any way. So, Shadala and Tadaryl decided they were ready to make a human sacrifice in the name of Satan. Um, Krista, too. And Krista knew who she wanted to kill. Colleen. So, the rest of the group agreed and started to plot this murder. They decided they would lure Colleen to an isolated steam plant that was located nearby at the University of Tennessee campus. Once they had her out of anyone's earshot, they would attack. The day before the murder, Krista was feeling really bold. She bragged to a classmate named Kim Ioli that she was planning to kill Colleen because she just felt mean that day. Kim didn't take any of Krista's threats seriously. It's hard to blame her. You know, how often do you hear people express frustration saying like, oh, I'm gonna... Well, maybe, hopefully, you're not hearing this often from people like, (laughs) I'm gonna kill this person. But, you know, if I was a teenager hearing someone say that, I wouldn't probably my first inclination wouldn't be to like call the police you know yeah like i'd say that about like my brother when he would kick me off the computer (laughs) yeah yeah (sighs) but you know obviously maybe as an adult i would say like err with caution but i don't blame him at all for not (laughs) doing anything but on january 12th 1995 kim saw the group uh, so Krista, Tadaryl, and Shadala walking with Colleen as they were leaving the Job Corps Center. Krista had convinced Colleen to smoke some weed with them as a peace offering. And I'm sure Colleen was, you know, maybe happy about making up with Krista and having a group of friends, I'm sure. You know, no one wants to be the odd man out. Um, so once they were out of view of any possible onlookers, Krista started to attack Colleen. And I'll throw in the same disclaimer that Natalie had here. It gets pretty dark. Um, she accused Colleen of trying to sleep with Tadaryl, and Colleen, of course, denied these ac- accusations. This made Krista even more mad. She hit Colleen and kneed her in the head. Krista threw Colleen to the ground, continuing to attack her. And at this point, Tadaryl also started to attack Colleen, while Shadala stood watch, making sure that no one would witness this horrible attack. Um, and again, so there was no evidence that Shadala participated in the attack, she also did not alert the authorities. But, again, they were all teenagers. So, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this girl might think, like, they're actually going to kill this girl. I don't want to be killed. Maybe I'm just not going to say anything. So, yeah. I don't, you know, necessarily place any blame on her in that situation. Mm-hmm. So, Colleen tried to get up and run away. But to Daryl stopped her, shoving her back down to the ground. They dragged Colleen to another area, and Krista pulled out a meat cleaver and a box cutter she had brought with her. She used those to attack Colleen. She continued to slash Colleen's body as she begged for her life. Krista didn't like that Colleen kept talking, you know, saying, like, why are you doing this to me? And she, so she took off her hairband and tied it around Colleen's mouth so she wouldn't be able to speak. They also forced her to remove her shirt and her bra 
making it less likely that she would keep trying to run away. So even though Colleen was severely beaten and bruised, Krista still wasn't finished. She slit Colleen's throat with the box cutter and carved a pentagram into her chest, then smashed Colleen's head with a chunk of asphalt. While hitting her, Krista demanded, do you know who's doing this to you? But at this point, Colleen couldn't even speak. She was only able to respond with groaning noises. God. Krista and Tadaryl dragged an unconscious Colleen behind some trees, leaving her body on a pile of dirt. Krista took a piece of Colleen's skull as a trophy, which will come up later, but they got to work on getting rid of the evidence, didn't do a great job, they left her clothes in some nearby bushes, quickly washed their hands and shoes off in a puzzle, puzzle, puddle. Um, Krista had borrowed the meat cleaver from someone, so she gave it back to them, and she also got rid of the box cutter. They weren't able to get all the blood out of their clothes, so Krista rubbed some mud from her shoes onto her jeans to conceal it. They had also at some point taken Colleen's IDs and gloves and abandoned them at a Texaco station. So at about 10.15 that night, Kim saw Krista to Daryl and Shadala return to the Job Court campus. Colleen did not return with them. Krista was not able to keep the secret for long. At 11 p.m., Krista went to Kim's room and immediately confessed the murder. She even showed her the piece of Colleen's skull. She bragged about carving a pentagram into Colleen's chest and how she had to cut Colleen's throat six times. Krista didn't appear remorseful. Instead, she was dancing around, smiling, and singing while telling Kim about the murder. The next day, Krista told even more people about the murder, showing off the skull fragment and showing off the stains on her shoes, assuring people that it wasn't mud, it was blood. At this point, no one reported the murder to the police. But again, it was like a bunch of kids that she was talking to. But also, Um, like, if someone's walking around, I don't know, with a skull, and I'm like, I'm gonna mind my own business. (laughs) Like, well, right. As a kid, you might be scared and you don't want to anger someone. And I don't know. It's just all messed up. I, I will say I don't like blame Kim at all for like mm-hmm. not immediately going to authorities. It's a scary situation to be in. Um, but Colleen's body was found around the same time that Krista was going around telling everyone about the murder. So a couple who was going for a walk that morning came across a huge puddle of blood and reported it to the groundskeeper. They followed the trail of blood spatters until they found Colleen's body. Her body was so badly beaten that they thought it might have been an animal at first. They immediately notified the authorities and medical examiners got to work determining the cause of death. They saw the pentagram carved into her chest, which made them think of the group of students who practiced satanic worship. Um, So investigators started to interview the students who said, yeah, uh, Krista and Tadaryl are kind of the leaders of the group. And by taking a look at the sign-out sheet, they saw that Krista, Tadaryl, and Shadala left campus around the time of the murder. They were questioned, they waived their Miranda rights, and they confessed the murder of Colleen Slemmer. I don't think they would be able to deny these accusations. There's literally, they had blood on them still. But also, Um, that's how you know they're, like, dumb kids, like, waiving their Miranda rights. Like, I, I get that they committed the crime, and yeah, like you're guilty i want you to be punished but you know well right i think that they were all like 
over the age of 18, but just barely. So, yeah. you know, they weren't, you know, legally required to have their parents or a lawyer there, but... Yeah, you're you're a kid till you're thirty, in my opinion. <laughs> Just kidding. I I'm still a kid. I, I agree with this. Maybe even after thirty. You're definitely a kid at eighteen. That's for sure. Absolutely. 18, I don't 20, think whatever. that there's yeah. There's not some like magical mm-hmm. thing that happens on your eighteenth birthday where you suddenly become like a fully functioning human being. Um, <laughs> but the arrest or the group was arrested and charged with murder and conspiracy to commit murder. The trial was straightforward. The prosecution had Christina or Krista's confession plus all of the evidence. The jury deliberated for a few hours before they found her guilty of all charges. And a few days later, on March 30th, Krista was sentenced to death by electrocution. So there's no excuse for Krista's horrible crimes. Absolutely no. none. Even after the trial, Krista did not show any remorse for killing Colleen in such a horrific way. She wrote a letter to, to Daryl that eventually made its way to the public eye. Um, most of my information comes from medium.com. This is where I saw a copy of it. Um, it's in my sources, like always. Uh, so uh, they have a picture of the note if you're interested in seeing it. But Krista wrote, please write me. I miss you so much. You see what I get for trying to be nice to the hoe. I went ahead and bashed her brain so she died quickly instead of letting her bleed to death and suffer more. And they effing fry me. Ain't that some shh. Um, so, clearly, I just don't think that this person processes emotions, you know, in a proper way. Um, mm-hmm. But Tadaryl was sentenced to life in prison plus 25 years with the possibility of parole. Krista, who was 19 at the time of the murder, um, so she was an adult in the eyes of the law, or she wasn't, Krista was 19 at the time of the murder, so she was considered an adult in the eyes of the law, but to Daryl was only 17. So I scratched what I just said like two seconds ago. So to Daryl was not eligible for the murder or to for the death sentence because he was only 17. Um, his team also made the argument that even though he participated in the attack of Colleen, he did not deliver the final blow that resulted in her death, which I mm. think is stupid um yeah just because he so happened to not (laughs) do that um it's clear the whole time i think that the intention was to kill her um so just because he didn't deliver the final blow doesn't mean that he you know wasn't totally responsible um Mm -hmm. but shadala ended up working with the investigators and received six years of probation so this leads me to believe that you know she maybe didn't quite you know understand what was happening or i feel like you know i wasn't able to find any information about it so who knows but and i would imagine that she at least you know expressed remorse because i don't think that they would you know let her off without showing she was remorseful um anyway but uh even with all the evidence working against her and her very clear confessions to the crime in june of 2001 krista appealed her convictions in the tennessee courts so krista was far from a model prisoner in august of 2001 one of her fellow inmates jennifer sovetsky i'm totally butchering that but she started a fire in a cell so krista along with another inmate natasha cornett who was serving three life sentences for the Lilliad family murders took advantage of the panic caused by the fire to attack patricia ann jones 
Patricia was serving life uh, plus 40 years for the murder of an 84-year-old woman named Alberta Coker. Krista and Natasha attempted to strangle Patricia with a shoelace. Natasha was responsible for the initial attack and Krista came up behind her to strangle her until she was unconscious. Hmm. Patricia probably would have died if a correctional officer didn't interfere when they did. The officer pulled Krista off of Patricia and Krista was quoted saying to the officer, I finally got a chance to kill you. I'm going to die anyway. They can't do anything to me. So in 2002, Krista dropped her appeal, but a few months later changed her mind and had her lawyers file a motion to start the appeal process again. In 2004, Krista was convicted of attempted first-degree murder of Patricia Ann Jones. She also turned down. She was also turned down for her request for a new trial in 2008. So we have a murder, we have an attempted murder in prison, and guys, I hate to say it, but this case gets even weirder. Oh, so, gosh. Krista was dating a man named Donald Cahoot. We know that lots of Donalds are maybe not the best people. Um, so Donald would come to the prison <laughs> on a regular basis to visit Krista. While at the prison, he met one of the correctional officers, Justin Heflin. Donald wanted to get Krista out of prison, and he wanted Justin to help him. So Donald started to bribe Justin with gifts and money. We don't know much about what the escape plan was. I don't get the impression that it was well thought out. They may have been planning an escape to the best of their ability, but I don't think even if they had, you know, did their plan that it would have worked at all. All we know is that Donald planned to copy a prison key. And, you know, I'm sure there's more than one key used in prisons and probably a lot of cameras, not to mention guards, whom I think it's kind of weird if an inmate was just, you know, walking around, you know, no change of clothes, like just, you know, a couple other things to take into consideration. Walking around like they own the place, yeah. But nonetheless, Donald was sentenced to seven years in prison. Justin managed to avoid any jail time by cooperating with the authorities after the arrest. Um, This is disappointing to me. I would hope that we hold our correctional officers to a higher standard, but, you know, maybe his testimony was, like, absolutely essential for Donald's case, so they didn't arrest him, but... Sigh. So, in April of 2012, Krista tried to overturn her attempted murder conviction by filing a motion, saying her previous lawyers were ineffective. She claimed she wasn't trying to kill Patricia Ann Jones. She was just trying to defend her friend from a woman who had a history of violently attacking other inmates. Um, Which, you know, I'm not saying that's not true. Patricia totally could have been violent. She killed someone. That's why she was in jail. Um, Krista could have thought this was her only option. However, I find it hard to believe that Krista was just acting in self-defense. So did the appellate court as they rejected her appeal. Hmm. In May of 2014, Krista and her lawyers tried to get her death sentence changed to life in prison. Her lawyers argued that her previous lawyers did not take into account that Krista had an organic brain injury, bipolar disorder, and PTSD. After Krista was convicted, she was examined by a neurologist who explained her frontal lobes were not connected correctly. This may have an impact on her functioning as the frontal lobes regulates our ability to make moral decisions. So in this case, there was, you know, concrete physical evidence that her functioning might have been impacted. However, in 
2016, the U.S. District Judge issued a ruling saying that all grounds were rejected. Her commutation... Commutation? Commutation. Commutation of her death sentence was denied. So, most recently, on August 22nd, 2019, Krista's... um, Krista's always filed the same, uh, I don't know what I was trying to say here, but in August, uh, of 2019, Krista tried to, um, do her same appeal with the United States Courts of Appeals, and all three judges said, no way, and they upheld the ruling of lower court, so to this day, she remains on death row. Um, so taking it back a few years, uh, in 2015, about 25 years after Colleen's murder, her mother, May Martinez, was still fighting to get a proper burial for her daughter. The piece of skull, um, that Krista had taken was being used as evidence. May could not forget the day that her daughter died. Colleen had called May while she was in a rush to get to the grocery store. May said, I can't talk to you right now. I'll call you back. She would never have the opportunity as Colleen was murdered later that day, which is just god awful. I think it's like everyone's worst nightmare that, you know, they think, what could I have done differently if I had stayed on the phone and talked to her? Would this have happened? So it's just incredibly sad that she's stuck with these horrible feelings. Um, So two days later, after that call, May got a call from investigators asking for help identifying the body. So over the course of the past 20 years, uh, the Tennessee, and I guess it's like 30 years at this point, the Tennessee police have mailed her unlabeled body parts. She was able to finally retrieve Colleen's skull at some point and take it home on an airplane a few years earlier. Um, so, but still was not given this last piece of, of her daughter's body. The First Coast News reached out to a forensic specialist named Michael Knox, who said it's possible that they will plan to keep the skull fragment until Krista's execution because they may need it if there is a retrial or for an appeal. May said she will not bury the box with Colleen's ashes until she gets the last piece of Colleen's body. She firmly believes that her daughter deserves the respect of a proper burial. She Mm -hmm. told the Democrat and Chronicle... I can't be numb. I need to fight for Colleen. I am her voice. And since then, you know, I have, there hasn't been any updates, so it doesn't look like she was reunited with this final piece. Um, so I have a couple things to say about the death penalty. I think I've, you know, made some comments here or there that, like, I'm not 100% anti-death penalty. I think in 99% of the cases I am. But after doing a little bit more research, I, you know, can't i i don't know um so (laughs) (laughs) this information on the death penalty see like in in my mind the like one percent of cases like all i think about is like ted bundy who Mm -hmm. like killed so many people in such a horrific manner that like in that case i think it's absolutely the victim's family's call um but in cases like this it's like a hard no but even in ted bundy cases well he was different he like escaped from jail a million times but um Anyway, so I have some information about the death penalty that comes from the Death Penalty Information Center. Um, So since 1976, there's been 1,529 executions carried out in the United States, which seems crazy to me. I would have not expected the number to be that high. So one major argument against the death penalty is that it's inevitable that 
innocent people will be killed by the government. So, since 1970, a little over 170 people have been released from death row with evidence of their innocence. I'm sure we saw an uptick of this after DNA technology has improved and continues to improve. So, I feel like that alone, you know, means that we should stop this because it's better for our government not to be complicit in the killing of innocent people. Um... So the Where death have I penalty... heard that before? <laughs> <laughs> you know, just little things. Um, so another, you know, big argument, I think, for the death penalty is that it's a deterrent for people committing murder. But it, from the data we have, it doesn't appear that that is the case. So a DPIC study um, of 30 years of data from the FBI Uniform Crime Report found that While the South is responsible for more than 80% of the executions, they still have the highest murder rate. And the Northeast, shout out to Boston, Massachusetts, all that, um, was responsible for less than 0.5% of all executions and has also had the lowest murder rate. So as researchers or people involved in research, we know that correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, but it's just like such a big disparity there that you know it's i just think that we can pretty conclusively say that this does not deter um people from committing horrible crimes um also one final point is the death penalty is expensive and it's a lot more expensive than keeping someone in jail So the information that I had from the website was a little bit dated, so bear with me, but in 1992, the Dallas Morning News found the average death penalty case cost an average of $2.3 million. So this is three times the cost of imprisoning someone in a single cell at the highest security level for 40 years. And according to the Palm Beach Post in 2000, shout out hometown, enforcing (laughs) the death penalty costs Florida an additional $51 million more a year than it would cost to punish all first-degree murderers with life in prison without parole. Uh, The average cost for an execution was about $24 million. And in 2014, the Kansas Judicial Court found that the defense for a death penalty trial costs about $400,000, while cases without the death penalty cost about $100,000. So I think from alone the stats pretty clearly point out that there's no conclusive evidence that the death penalty deters people from committing violent crime and it's also way more expensive so maybe we could use some of that extra money and do some like programs for kids so they don't have to experience trauma a lot i don't know yeah just my thoughts um and you know my stance it just seems like a moral failing. <laughs> like, you know, I feel like we've all heard the, like, you know, it's probably a meme or something like, you know, we live in a country where, like, we kill people to show other people that killing people is wrong. Like, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and there is, like, no, um, in my opinion, especially as it varies from state to state, like, we see how you know taking the death penalty off the table we see how like racist 
um, sentencing can be and how, mm-hmm. um, you know, different people get harsher sentences on a first offense, mm-hmm. um, whereas others maybe on a three time offense. Like there's just so much like variability in like the equation that it just doesn't it just seems like it's like Russian roulette. We're just picking like who's going to die and who isn't. And I just feel like that responsibility like, I don't I don't think anyone has the responsibility to decide who lives or dies. Like for me, the only case where I'm like, OK, like or I understand murder is like in self-defense and like mm-hmm. sometimes war. <laughs> like, um, and I think you made a really good point when we were texting about it the other day, um, just about like the mental toll that that has to take on the person who has to, you know, I'm glad the- I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, the person doing the execution. So yeah, it's important to note that the lawmakers who say, yep, we're doing the death penalty, they have no involvement in, you know, they're not the ones going down and doing these things. So they're basically having some random, not completely random citizen, but they don't have to get emotionally involved in these battles. They are not the ones flipping the switch, you know, doing committing the i don't even know what you call it causing the death like yeah so the people who are doing this don't have skin in the game i'm sure that if a lot of those people like attended those executions if they had to be the ones to quote unquote pull the trigger i'm not sure that they would continue to fight so much for this um and i think what's disappointing too is a lot of people who are pro-life are also pro-death penalty um yeah so yeah i'm i'm glad you brought that up and i hope that we can revisit this so we can Mm -hmm. go i found some really great articles and i know i've listened to podcasts before about um people who are actually having to kill other people and i i would want to bring that back in but i just ran out of time this time around yeah yeah it's messed up And, you know, if you just, you know, want to see the fallibility of the justice system, you know, we've recommended it before. Just watch Just Mercy, you know, just just watch that movie. That's a great (laughs) movie. Also, uh, read this book. It's called The Autobiography of an Execution. It was about uh, it's a true story of a murder or guy who represents people on death row. And it just goes through it's like one of my favorite books i read it a long time ago and i've just reread it it's really stuck with me but so the person he was defending was innocent and they um i don't want to spoil the ending but they ended up being killed um and it's just it gives you like a really first-hand look at the experience and i think in that case in particular that there were you know um racial implications there um, from what I remember, but that's, like, my little recommendation there if you're really into true crime. Um, that was a really sure. good book, and yeah, Just Mercy, great movie. It's also a book, so haven't read it, but yeah, I'm sure it's book. fantastic. Uh, and that's all <laughs> yeah. I have to say about that. Yes. Um, yeah, everyone, I hope you guys are all well in the midst of the chaos of the world. <laughs> yeah, I will say... I was just watching Gary was just licking her little paw and like doing the little thing where she like does her ear and I'm like oh even though I'm so heated and now I have all these extra emotions from my frustrations with the justice system at least there's like little kitty cats who 
Take little cute kitty cat baths. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.